We uh, have a video right now that uh, we interrupted with prayer. We were going to go right into it after announcements, and I came up and started, and so I'm going to let Ron roll that for us. We have lit the Advent candle of love today. So, so far we have every love, joy, peace, hope. The last one, the white one, is Christ's birth, and we light that and talk about that on Christmas Eve. Mom, Dad, I'm pregnant. You think she said it like that? Almost like, here it is, deal with it. And by the way, your grandson, he'll be the son of the most high God. Yeah, how, how do you even say that? The angel told her not to be afraid. And Mary, well, we know she was faithful. So maybe, maybe she just decided to believe him. That whatever was about to happen, she was gonna be okay. When do you think she realized that she hadn't accidentally found herself in this situation, but she'd actually been chosen for it? Because when you know that you're chosen, that's when you know that you're loved. And when you're loved, well, that gives you the kind of confidence you need to walk through doors everyone else wouldn't dare go through. But Mary dared. She dared to trust God as she watched him give life, then give it up for our sakes. And it all, in the unforgettable miracles and the very scary moments, she trusted his will rather than demanded answers, walked forward instead of turned back, stepped out instead of hit. Kind of makes you want to be like that little girl, huh? So do not be afraid. Listen carefully, for I proclaim to you good news that brings great joy to all the people. Today, your Savior is born in the city of David. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men on whom his favor rests. Amen. The Advent candle symbolizing love today. I love what the video said about that. When you know that you're chosen, that's when you know that you're loved. Scripturally, to be chosen is to be loved. And when you know that you're loved, it gives you the kind of confidence to walk through doors that others wouldn't dare to go through. Then how the video said, Mary trusted God's will rather than demanding answers. She walked forward instead of turning back. She stepped out instead of hiding. I thought, oh, that we could, we could be like that, that we could imitate that and have faith for the things that don't make sense and trust God that, um, that there are answers, that... You know, so many people view Christian faith as, as a blind leap of faith, and yet it's trusting that God is a good God, and that as we pursue answers, that He will have those unfold, that He will honor our searching. And Scripture talks about that, that God honors those who diligently seek Him. And so we're going to talk today about what love is. If you have an outline, um, <clears throat> as usual, we have three points that we're going to bring home today that, that center around God's love and what that means. And I want to begin today by suggesting that the Advent candle of love symbolizes that God, that we have found favor with God. 
that we have found favor with God. Excuse me. Love communicates first and foremost in Scripture as we, as we look at the stories unfold that we have found favor with God. Powerful thought. I love what Mark Twain said about favor. He said, heaven operates on favor. If it went by merit, you would be out and your dog would be in. <laughs> As we walk through Scripture, we find a number of people who found favor with God. Scripture begins by saying Noah found favor with God. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Israel, Gideon, Samuel, David, Solomon, Daniel, Mary found favor with God. And if you look at the Old Testament root as well as the New Testament root, both root words simply mean grace. So to receive God's favor is in essence to experience grace, to be a recipient of grace. In fact, we define grace as unmerited favor because that's exactly what it is. It's not something that's earned or deserved. It's not something that we're worthy of. It is something that God, by his grace and kindness, bestows upon us. And perhaps the best passage in Scripture that really combines these themes of God's grace and love and favor is in Ephesians 2. You can turn there. Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 9, or you can listen as I read. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation today. Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 9. This is what the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions or sins, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So stop there for a moment. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, if you have trusted him as the answer for your righteousness, realizing that I can never achieve God's righteousness on my own. Christ paid the price for that on the cross, and I trust him. I've surrendered to him. Then positionally right now, you are seated with God in the heavenly places. That's your standing, which is just mind-blowing. And then verse 7. This is the part that just gets me every time I read it. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For all of eternity, God is going to display and, and demonstrate and show to us the riches of his grace in kindness through Christ Jesus. Like, that is, that is an eternal project. It is something that isn't going to take a half an hour or an hour or a day or a month. It is going to be all of eternity, the unfolding of God's riches and grace to us through Christ Jesus, his kindness. If you look back at chapter 1 of Ephesians in verse 7, we find out that that phrase, riches of grace, is repeated here. And back in chapter 1, verse 7, it refers to forgiveness and redemption and salvation. So the essence of God's riches of grace that he pours out to us through Jesus is, in fact, salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, redemption, that we have been bought with a price, and that we are, therefore, to glorify God with our lives. 
Brendan Manning was a um, former Catholic priest, struggled with alcoholism his whole life, and died just a few years ago, but wrote a number of books that had to do with Abba Father and the Ragmuffin Gospel and what it means to be a recipient of God's unconditional love. And I love this quote by him. He says, My profound awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ, and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. That, that is what it means to internalize Ephesians 2 in Scripture, the message of Scripture, that we are deeply, deeply, profoundly loved by God, and yet we've done nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. It is simply on the basis of His favor and His grace, and how amazing that is. The, the Christmas story really begins with the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary and telling her that she had found favor with God. Not that she was a perfect woman that would go on to be a saint that we would pray to and ask for things because of her standing, being equal with God. No, she was an ordinary human girl, humble girl who loved the Lord and found favor in God's sight. And she became part of the Christmas story. As the angel said in Luke chapter 1, verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Powerful. And now... The message of Scripture is that we, through faith in Christ, have become recipients of grace as well. That God's favor and grace has been extended to us. Salvation has been extended to us. John says in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 16, For of Christ's fullness we have all received grace upon grace. It's like God has layered grace and favor and grace and favor, just layered these things upon one another through Jesus Christ to us. That's why salvation is a free gift. Nothing that we could do to earn it. Uh, as one person said so beautifully once, nothing you could do could cause God to love you more than he does right now. And nothing you could do could cause him to love you less as well. That, that's the nature of unconditional love. That you are profoundly, deeply loved by God and you have nothing to do with it, positively or negatively. You can't add to it, you can't subtract from it. That's, that's just mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. I love what author and pastor John Stott once said. He said, faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. The only function of faith is to receive what grace offers. And that's what we talk about all the time. It's Christmas is a... A, a, a good time of year because we exchange gifts and we know we can visually see what it means to have someone extend and offer you a gift and, and how, how, what a wonderful thing that is. But it's not yours until you take it and accept it and are grateful for it and unwrap it and, and make it your own. You can look at it and say, wow, that's such beautiful wrapping. I wonder what's inside. Or that's really cool that you thought of me. And we can just leave it on the table or let the person stand there holding it. And in essence, that's what we do with God as he offers us this free gift through Christ. And we say, you know, we kind of intellectualize it. Like, that's amazing that God was willing to send his son to the cross. 
That's amazing that there's people in the world that really need that. And we can distance ourselves from that and act like we don't have that need. And so appropriating that gift through faith means accepting it. And I, I would ask you today, have you ever received that gift? Are you here today and you have never trusted God personally for your salvation? You have never articulated that, as Scripture says, all of our <clears throat> righteousness is, is filthy rags compared to the righteousness of God. That, that no one comes to God except through Jesus. And that, that's a work of faith and grace. It's a free gift and not one of works, lest anyone should boast. Have you received the salvation, the forgiveness that he offers? The Christmas message of God's love is available to every single one of us as a free gift. And that's, that was the beauty of what the angels proclaimed to the shepherds. Good news of a great joy that shall be for all the people. Not the privileged or the educated or just the Jews, but not the Gentiles. For everybody. Despite your background, despite your economic class, all of those things. We are recipients of God's favor. Secondly, the, th the second thing that I believe that God's love and this candle that we've lit symbolizes is, is that we're chosen, that we are chosen. I love that TV series that we've talked about so much, The Chosen, you know, the disciples that Jesus chose to do ministry with him. And I, I, I had a fun time this week as I kind of walked through Scripture and looked at the examples of people that God chose and why he chose them. And so indulge me and just walk with me, if you will, quickly through Scripture and kind of get a, a, a big picture of what it means to be chosen by God. God chose Abraham in Genesis 18. Genesis 18 says, God says to Abraham, Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about to him. So God chose Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you so that you would be a blessing to others. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses communicated God's choice of Israel as his people. He said, you are a people to the Lord your God, a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Remember that phrase, very powerful, a people for his own possession. Out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you, and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God said, I chose you to be my people, my special people, not because you were deserving and worthy, not because you were this great nation out of all the nations of the world. You're just this little speck on the map. You're constantly threatened by everybody around you. But I chose you, and because I chose you, that's why you're special, to be my own possession. In Deuteronomy 21, records for us God's choice of priests. It says, the Lord your God has chosen the priests, the sons of Levi, to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And every dispute and every assault will be settled by them. 
So God chose the priests not only to make sacrifices on behalf of the people, but to be the, the early judges who would settle disputes. The Old Testament book of Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, lifts up David as the king that God chose rather than Saul, the king that was representative of the people's choice. They chose Saul because he was taller than all of the other Israelites and he was handsome and all of these things. But David represented God's choice. And God communicates his choice to the prophet Samuel in this way, in that beautiful verse that many of you know, 1 Samuel 16, 7. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is not fooled by politics and how people present themselves or posture themselves. God sees straight through to the heart. And David, yeah, he's going to make some mistakes, some big ones. But he's a man after my own heart. He's a man who truly loves me, who truly wants to do the right thing. And so I've chosen him for king. (laughs) Saul, you guys are going to live to regret that decision. I wanted to be your king as your God, and you wanted a king, and you got Saul. And now you're going you're gonna to regret that. <laughs> Isaiah 42 describes God's choice of a Messiah who would come and accomplish what kings and priests and prophets were unable to do. Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. God had chosen the Israelites to be a special people. Why? So that they could just bask in his love and his grace and his mercy and his blessing and just soak it in and say, too bad, all you other people. No, so that they could be a channel of that blessing and love to other people. And yet Israelites, the Israelites thought, we're God's special people. Everybody else is second class. And so God called a Messiah who would have that same mission to release the captives, to bring about justice It's to proclaim to the world the freedom and salvation that is through the Messiah. Christ came to fulfill that mission that prophets and kings and priests were unable to do. And as we turn to the New Testament, Matthew and his gospel, as we've said, Matthew uses more Old Testament quotes and prophecies and scripture than any other gospel because his gospel is written to the Jews. And he's trying to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the one. That he's the Messiah, the promised one, the expected one. And in chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 18, he says that this prophecy in Isaiah 42 that I just read, this is speaking of Jesus. This, Jesus is the one who fulfills this. 
And God the Father affirms this connection, this truth, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Christ is up there and he's glorified in the presence of of Peter and John, and that voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This is the one. This is the Messiah. This is my son. I have chosen him. Listen to him. Well, we all know that Jesus went on to choose disciples and apostles. Disciples were those, literally, the Greek is who follow. Apostles were those who were sent out. So we are all disciples and apostles in one way or another because we are called to follow Christ and to be sent out to spread the gospel message. And then one of those disciples, one of those apostles, Peter, in his first letter in chapter 2, wrote this of us, all of us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Where did we hear that before? Deuteronomy 7, when God was speaking about the Israelites. Now we have been grafted in. We have joined Israel in being the church. We are the people of God. We are a people for God's own possession. Why? So that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once we were not a people. Once we had no status, no standing, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's words echo Deuteronomy 7. Everything that God said of the Israelites as special people, that is now us. Believers in God through faith in Jesus. Powerful. Entertainer Garrison Keillor talks about a, a, a painful childhood memory of always being chosen last for baseball games. The team captains would be down to their last grudging choices. A slow kid for catcher. Someone to stick out in right field where nobody hits it. And they would choose the last ones two at a time. You and you. Because it really didn't matter. (laughs) The remaining kids were seen as the scrubs. The excess. As literal handicaps. If I take him, then you got to take him. They would say, sometimes I was picked as high as sixth, but usually lower. Just for once, just for once, I wished Daryl would pick me first and say him. I want him. The, the skinny guy with the glasses and the, and the black shoes. Come on, you're on my team. Let's play. But I was never chosen with much enthusiasm. As I read this, I thought, have you and I ever considered that we were not only chosen early, we were chosen before the foundation of the earth. Read, read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. God chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the earth. We were not an afterthought. We were not, okay, <clears throat> well, I've got to take them because that's part of the deal. No, we were chosen before the creation of the universe. That, that describes amazing love, amazing purpose. Very, very powerful. I love the theme verse that our kids learned at Vacation Bible School. I forget if it was this last year or the year before, but Isaiah chapter 43, where God says, 
Thus says the Lord your God, your creator, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. If you still haven't watched in the, the Chosen series, you've got to watch that first episode. And, and my disclaimer is that first episode, season one, episode one, is pretty slow moving, but the last five to ten minutes, the hair will be standing up on the back of your arms. And it has to do with Mary Magdalene. And it has to do with God calling her out of a very sinful life and a very hurtful past, and he uses this passage. And when he speaks these words to her, she just she freezes because she realizes he's the Messiah. He's the one that we've been studying about, that we've been looking for, and it's just powerful, powerful. Well, the third point, God communicates his love not only in his unmerited favor that he extends to us, not only <clears throat> by the fact that we are chosen, but finally, by the fact that we are relentlessly pursued. God's love is a, a relentless pursuit. That's the type of love. Powerful. I was reading this week that back in the 1800s, <clears throat> Methodist preachers were known as circuit riders. Many of you have heard that. Because they went great distances by horseback to take the gospel to those who needed to hear it. They were so relentless in their ministry that on stormy days, there was a proverbial saying, there's nothing out today but crows and Methodist preachers. Because the weather didn't stop them. That was their zeal and passion to just get out there and, and proclaim the good news. 19th century British poet Francis Thompson wrote a famous poem in which he portrayed God as the hound of heaven. In a recent biography of author and pastor John Stott, Stott claimed that he owed his faith in Christ not to his parents or his teachers or even his own decision, but to Jesus, who in his words was the hound of heaven. Stott says, My faith is due to Jesus Christ himself, who pursued me relentlessly, even when I was running away from him in order to get my own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. And a lot of us can say amen. That describes me. That describes you. If it were not for God's relentlessly pursuing love, we, we would have been lost forever. You and I are relentlessly pursued by an everlasting God with an eternal, unconditional love. Just hard to believe. As I said before, nothing you can do can cause that love to be greater. Nothing you can do can cause that, that love to be less. That's the nature of God's love for us and to us. I was reading a beautiful story this week about a father who noticed that as his two sons moved from childhood to adolescence, they responded differently to his affection. He writes, When they were little, they seemed eager to hug me. They would jump into my arms and cling to me with all of their might. But when they became teenagers, things changed. Oh, they still let me hug them. But in their teen years, they stiffened ever so slightly. There was a resistance there that wasn't there before. What changed? 
Some of it, I'm sure, can be attributed to the awkwardness of adolescence. But I think the change was also a symbol of their growing independence. The autonomy that they declared with their body language was matched by the choices that they made. They stiffened against the constraints my wife and I had placed on them, just as they did my embrace. The rules and standards that we saw as an expression of our love and as a means of protection, they mistook as a prison. He goes on to say, I wonder which it is for us. When it comes to God's strong hand of love, is it a source of comfort? Or is it something that we stiffen against and resist? Does the inescapable presence of God make us feel protected? Is that steady footfall that we hear the mark of a faithful companion, of a guide, of a rear guard who has our back? Or do we feel like God has laid sage to our soul? Do we see his relentless pursuit as the pursuit of an adversary or as the lover of our soul drawing us to himself? I love the beautiful words of Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Long ago, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. I love that because that word everlasting means, obviously, without end, perpetual, relentless. And, and I love how God's, God's love is depicted not as a chasing after, but a, as a drawing, a continual drawing of us to himself. And I really believe that's what was going on in the parable of the prodigal son. The, the prodigal father is not chasing the son all the crazy places that he went. He allows the son to hit rock bottom. But as that son is returning home, the father runs out and embraces him and accepts him and restores him. But the father has been drawing that son back to himself all along. And that's the relentless pursuit of God. Not a chasing after, but a continual drawing of us to himself. What a beautiful picture that's there. My favorite book in all of Scripture that depicts the drawing love of God is the book of Hosea, where many theologians and scholars have said, well, it's not historical, it's allegorical, because what God would, would tell a prophet to go marry a prostitute? God's like, I'm trying to communicate the love I have for my people, and there's no better way to communicate it than to tell this man of God, this righteous, holy man, to go marry a woman of harlotry, because that's what I've done with the unfaithful people that I've taken to myself. And then as you read the story of Hosea, you find that Hosea takes this woman and makes her his own and loves and just bestows grace and kindness to her, and they have this wonderful relationship, and they have children together, and she goes back to her old way of life. And God says, go, go and redeem her, bring her back, make her yours again. Go, restore her, reunite with her, reconcile with her. Because that is the best description I can give my people of my relentless pursuit of them. Despite their unfaithfulness, despite their sinfulness, 
I pursue them and I constantly draw them back to myself. Such a beautiful book. We are chosen and loved and pursued relentlessly, just like Hosea pursued Gomer. And Hosea's pursuit of Gomer was imperfect. It was an imperfect reflection of God's perfect pursuit of you and I. Powerful. Well, as we close today, I read this guy this week, Christopher Wright, and he was reminding us that the biblical doctrine of election, despite what you believe about election and free will, it divides people all the time, arguments constantly, is it election, is it free will, and it's both. <laughs> and we just we argue for one or the other, but he says, despite what you believe about the biblical doctrine of election, the wonderful truth that we've become recipients of God's favor, that we've been chosen through his amazing love, that we are relentlessly pursued by his unconditional love. Despite what you believe, it's not just for our individual benefit, but it's for the benefit of others. According to Scripture, election means the elect become agents of blessing to others. And he shares the following story. He says, it's as if a group of trapped cave explorers choose one of their number, one of their party, to squeeze through a narrow flooded passage to get out to the surface and call for help. The point of the choice is not so that they alone can be saved, but so that they can bring help and equipment to ensure the rest get rescued. Election in such a case is the instrumental choice of one for the sake of many. And friends, that's where we end today. We, we are not here today to just bask in the love of God, the fact that we are recipients of his unmerited favor, the fact that he has chosen us, and, and how wonderful it is that he relentlessly pursues us. That's a love that we need to model to the world around us. And you say, well, the world around us isn't deserving of that kind of love. Are we? Have we, have we fooled ourselves into thinking that God sought us and cleaned us up, and now we're, we're pretty cool. No. Every day we are reminded of, of our, our sinfulness and the fact that how would the God of the universe love us in such a way? And we are to model that love that to the world around us, to the people around us, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our family, to the people that are hardest to love. Not because they're deserving, but because the love that God has filled us with is a love that pursues relentlessly. Let's pray. Father God, as we draw closer and closer to your coming, as we celebrate the fact that you came and brought salvation, that you were the fulfillment of prophecy, the Messiah, and as we celebrate the fact that you are coming again to establish your kingdom on earth, forever and ever, and you shall reign, and there will be peace and justice forevermore as we, as we anticipate that, as we look forward to that, as we long for that. God, we want these, these themes of Christmas, of hope and peace and joy and love to be not just attributes or characteristics that we bask in and enjoy personally, but realities that we share with those around us, particularly those that may not feel deserving of those, because that is the greatest example that we can give of who you are. God, may we never give up on people. May we never love people less 
because of their actions, but may we model the unconditional love with which we have been loved. That's the heart of the gospel, Lord God, and we pray that we as your ambassadors can serve you well. Lord God, as we give of our tithes and our offerings today, whether we do that physically here or we do it online, we thank you for the privilege of partnering with you in your kingdom work. And as always, we ask that you would bless and multiply these gifts to not only meet the needs of this church and the staff and, and all of the ministries here, but also the ministries and, and partnerships that we have in Ventura County and around the world, Lord God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.